Hey there, Numinous Podcast friends and fans. It's that time of year again. You can get three free days in the Numinous Network when you sign up between March 22nd through 24th. If you sign up during that period, you'll get three free days to look inside and try before you buy. We've got self-massage and somatics classes, support sessions for folks with long COVID and sensitive nervous systems due to autoimmunity or disability, plus a BIPOC-only meditation and ancestral veneration session. On top of that, on Saturday, March 23rd, I'm leading my popular half-day workshop, 10 Steps to Trauma-Sensitive Trance Work. It's appropriate for anyone leading meditation or trance journey sessions, or anyone who's considering hypnotherapy as a treatment modality, but isn't sure what to look for in a practitioner. That session will be recorded in case you can't attend live. Sign up for my newsletter to learn all the details about how you can access three free days in March and learn more about the Numinous Network work at carmenspaniola.com. The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This podcast is a compliment to the Numinous School, my online intuition development program for people who want their self-awareness to serve a greater good. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, and today on the podcast, I'm connecting with John Michael Greer. You may remember him from episodes 59 when we talked about ritual and magic, and 44 when we talked about mystery teachings of the living earth. For the better part of the past year, I've been working my way through John's thick tome, The Celtic Golden Dawn, an original and complete curriculum of Druidic study. It's basically a handbook for the solo practitioner of Earth-based spirituality who feels an affinity for mystery schools. It's a symbiosis of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn with Druidry. John's actually written over half a dozen books on druidry and nature-based spirituality alone, just that one category, as well as a whole host of other books on mystery schools with their arcane knowledge and intriguing histories. So if anyone is uniquely qualified to write a handbook of this sort, it's John. So John, tell us, what identities do you lead with? (laughs) That's always the kind of question that I um, I have to scratch my head over a little bit. Um, what can I say? I'm a druid. Um, I am a student of esoteric spiritual traditions, have been since my youth. Um, I'm kind of a geek about it. You, 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 everyone hears about computer geeks. There are non-computer geeks. I'm one of them. Um, <laughs> and so that's that's that. Just key. Think, think of think of me as um, a slightly odd person with a beard who studies strange books and, and occasionally has, I hope, something worthwhile to say about them. That is a visually which description, actually. I, I'm, <laughs> I think that's helpful for people. So we're talking today about your book, The Celtic Golden Dawn, which I've been working through for several months now. And mm-hmm. uh, I wonder if we can start at the very beginning, can you just give a brief overview of the history of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn? Sure thing. Um, The Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn was the most influential magical order of modern times. It came into being in 1877, right out, try that again, 1887, get the dates right here, Um, coming right out of the first rush of the beginning of the magical revival in the Western world. Started a couple of decades earlier with Elavis Levy, the great French occult writer, when he wrote Doctrine and Ritual of High Magic. And um, so basically you had a bunch of um, men and women in Britain who were very interested in, ma- in the magical arts and who organized this group, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, to offer initiation and training. And it was a very elaborate system. Their goal was literally to put together the entire magical tradition of the Western world into a single package. I don't know that anyone could ever succeed in, in so gargantuan a task, but they gave it a, a really good shot. And they came up with a system that, um, you know, for all its limitations, that it has, it has some, um, it is really the, the most complete magical education you can get these days, even even today. So 
The Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, um, founded in 1887, really had its stride around 1890, blew sky high in a series of political crises between um, 1900 and 1903. Um, everybody who is listening to us knows this story already. You know, the group of really gifted people who don't who lack the talent to really get along. <laughs> and you, you, we, you, we've all watched this, okay? And, and you start getting the, the quarrels, things spiral out of control. Somebody tries to become, to, to take charge and run things, and it all goes pluey. That's what happened to the original Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. There were various um, splinter groups that went flying off in all directions. Um, now, one, one thing that happened during this period of conflict, of argument, of bickering, of nastiness, a lot of people who were members of the Golden Dawn bailed out, of course, the way people do in a situation like that. And it so happened that a bunch of them ended up going to the, British, the various British Druid orders that existed at that time, which were going through a very peaceful period in their history. That, that doesn't always happen. There have been some rough spots in, Druid, in Druidry's history, too. But it, at that time, the British Druid scene was calm. It was quiet. People got along well. And all these basically refugees from the Golden Dawn were going, oh, thank God. <laughs> so they brought a lot of stuff with them, a lot of the teachings and traditions. And that was kind of where, um, as, as we'll see as we proceed, that's kind of where this book came from, that, that interaction between Golden Dawn initiates and people in the, in the British Druid scene mm -hmm. in, the, in the first half of the 20th century. Okay. So I'd like to talk about the main differences philosophically mm -hmm. and practically between the more Judeo-Christian approach, the Hermetic Order mm -hmm. of the Golden Dawn, and then the Druidical approach and how you've merged them together. As we're starting that though, can you just like, you know, there's certain signs and symbols that are clues mm -hmm. if you if you recognize the Golden Dawn. How would people who, who've just, this is the first time they've ever heard of this, what are some of the very common signs and symbols that would help them identify, oh, that might be in the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn tradition? I, I have a few in mind, but I'm wondering if you could help people identify. Okay. The thing that you look for, first of all, um, is if anybody's tracing a pentagram in the air, mm -hmm. okay, the five-pointed star, um, Eliphas Levy, who I talked about earlier, the, the French occultist, introduced that idea as the pentagram as an important magical symbol. The Golden Dawn was the people who created the lesser ritual of the pentagram, which just about everybody does. Mm -hmm. So now it's been borrowed by everybody and their mother-in-law at this point. <laughs> but so you, you look for that, you look for... Um, cross and triangle in combination. It's a very common Golden Dawn symbol. Um, you look for, in the Hermetic order, you're going to look for a lot of Hebrew. And you're going to look for a particular form of the Kabbalist Tree of Life, which we are going to be talking about a little later. Mm. Um, and so those are things that, I mean, there's a lot. The, the, the Golden Dawn, the body of material that was, that was published by the Golden Dawn, which I ended up editing, um, the, the seventh edition of Rogardi's, of Rogardi's book, The Golden Dawn, I edited mm -hmm. a few years ago. Mm -hmm. It's an immense body of lore. You can keep yourself busy with that for, for a decade at least mm -hmm. just to get the, the, the basic hang of it. But, um, but those are some of the basic symbols. Now, to cycle to your question about the Judeo-Christian and the, and the Druidical understandings of things and how those work out in philosophy and practice, the Judeo-Christian tradition is a, prof or a pair of Jewish, Judaism and Christianity, a pair of prophetic religions, by which I mean they had founders. They had, um, we had, I mean, all the religions in the world very broadly, there's some over, there's a bunch of overlap, but very broadly, we can sort them out of two classes, prophetic religions and traditional religions. Prophetic religions have founders. Prophetic religions are about saving you from something, whether it's saving you from ignorance as in Buddhism or suffering, whether it's saving you from hell as in Christianity or what have you. There's always that thing of salvation. There's something wrong with you and you have to be saved. Mm. Um, um, most, not all. Not all. Most prophetic religions tend to be um, down on nature. Mm. They tend to be, you know, the world is this is this kind of, you know, the the, the world isn't 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 good enough for us. We should be going to heaven or nirvana or what have you. Um, and and so it and and, they, and of course in the Western world, meaning from from the Middle East on on 
as far as you care to go. Um, prophetic religions are monotheistic. They're, you know, we've got the only God there is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it almost hostage lots it. You know, we've got the only God there is. <laughs> and if you want to see him again, you'd better play, you pay your tithes. <laughs> you better pray. Um, yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Traditional religions are polytheistic. They believe in many divine powers at many levels, from the, from the great powers of the cosmos to, to in nature spirits. Mm-hmm. Okay. Traditional religions don't have founders. They just they evolve out of out of people's experience. Mm-hmm. Um, traditional religions tend to be tend to have a much more relaxed attitude toward nature. They didn't have a much more relaxed attitude toward sexuality, which of mm-hmm. course ties us is one of the more, most direct ways in which we experience nature. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't tend to get all bent out of shape about concepts like sin. It's more <laughs> how do we establish good relations with the physical and spiritual worlds. Mm. And so in talking about taking something that was basically rooted in a Judeo-Christian, a prophetic standpoint, which, of course, the Hermetic or the Older of the Golden Dawn was, its founders were mostly Episcopalians. Mm. Um, oh, yeah. The, the, most, most of the people who, who were involved in the founding of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, they belonged to the Anglican Church, as it is, of course, over in England. Wow. And, and in fact, they, and they made heavy use of Christian symbolism. Mm-hmm. And taking that and taking the techniques and reworking them for a druidical standpoint, a standpoint that is more nature-centered, that is not focused on this notion of salvation, of there's something wrong with you, you're full of sin, but, but just mm-hmm. let's establish good relations with the cosmos here. Mm-hmm. Um, it took a lot of work, but I had the great advantage that a lot of that work had been done by those refugees from the Golden Dawn back in the 1920s and 30s, you see. Can I ask you about some of those refugees? Is one sure. of them the, the fellow who, and I can't, I'm losing his name, I know you'll know it, but the fellow who went on to found Wicca? Oh, Gerald Gardner. Um, no, Gardner came in from a slightly different source. Oh. But um, it, the, the, the thing a lot of people miss is that the occult scene, especially back at that time, was a bubbling cauldron of different things. There was all kinds of stuff going on. Um, Gardner, actually Gardner was, was, was involved in one of, the, one of the main druid orders at that time. One of his very close friends was Ross Nichols, who was the founder of the Order of Bards of and Druids, and probably the most influential druid writer of the, of the 20th century. Hmm. And um, see, so, but he was hit, he was going in his own direction. He wanted to to re to reinvent um, a kind of a really robust pagan sexual you know sex centered nature spirituality, and that's where we got you know traditional Wicca. Hmm. Um, but yeah, the, most of the people that were involved in this are not names that anyone has ever heard of. In some cases, I can't even find the names. All we have are scraps hmm. of. Um, like stuff under pseudonyms. When somebody signs their document, Pendragon, that doesn't right. give you a lot of help for chasing down the biography. Right. So since there's so few records then, you had to create the Celtic Golden Dawn, this this new book, from something. And so, there, you know, there's talk, the word reconstructionist is used sometimes in, um, you know, Gallic polytheism or Celtic polytheism, um, uh, you know, so this idea of a reconstructionist approach to paganism seems to be, at least it's on the internet, I think, because we don't know and we can't attribute. So I'm, I'm curious, like, how did you decide? I know you've been studying forever, but you know, how much of this is, you know, were you able to recreate and, and how much of this is through your own practice? Can you just tell me a bit about how you what a druidical curriculum, which is what this book is, how yeah. did you decide what it needed to look like? Okay, well, here again, I had a huge advantage, and this is something you won't hear from the Reconstructionists, because they tend to be kind of edgy about this. There have been people doing druid stuff for about 300 years now, mm-hmm. um, what we call the Druid Revival. God, God is starting in the early 18th century, right around the time the Industrial Revolution was getting going. Mm-hmm. What happened was you had a lot of people in, in Britain at that time who were looking at the spiritual options available to them. Here you have dogmatic Christian religion on the one hand. Here you have dogmatic scientific atheism beginning to take shape on mm-hmm. the other hand. And both of them saying, we're the only choices there are. Mm-hmm. And so you have these people who were looking at the one and looking at the other and saying, you know, I'm going to take door number three. And everyone's saying, well, there is no door number three. And they're saying, okay, we'll invent one. Mm. And so what happened was they took what was known, what little was known about the ancient Druids, and they said, you know, this is the kind of thing we want. 
we want a spirituality that's rooted in nature. We want a spirituality that celebrates the living world, the cycles of the seasons and things like this. And yeah, they're, you know, they're doing this again. This is in the early 18th century. This is, um, you know, if you, if you like, just as a, as a reference that many of our listeners will get, imagine characters in a Regency romance mm. going up onto Primrose Hill in London to celebrate the autumn equinox. It happened during mm. the Regency. Mm-hmm. There were druids. I mean, one of these days, I want to write a Regency romance that involves, you know, 18th century druids. I think it'd be a hoot. That'd be great. Um, there was a huge religious counterculture going on in this time that doesn't get into, um, you know, the, the, your, your common or garden variety Regency romance, of course. Mm-hmm. But, but so seriously, you had these people running around who were getting into trying to create a druid spirituality of nature. Um, a fair number of them were Welsh or Irish or what have you. They had access to Celtic folklore, Celtic traditions, but they also had the, the way that the traditional religions always grow, which is you do things and you find out what works. Mm-hmm. You know, you, do, you, you come up with a ritual, you perform the ritual. Does it have an effect on you? Does it seem to work, or does it just go thump? Um, you have a kind, you get a kind of meditation. Somebody's teaching this kind of meditation. You say, "Hmm, how about I try this within my the spiritual practice that I'm doing?" And it goes from there. When you do that for 300 years, <laughs> you've got a pretty fair body of material built up, and that's what's happened with the Druid revival. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of things that have been worked out over that 300 year period, and so us us modern Druids. Um, we're not, re- well, the reconstructionists will tell you at the top of their lungs, we're not reconstructionists. They're right. You know, <laughs> we're working with a tradition that it, with it, it's its own thing. Right. And what we're doing is not, I'm sure it's not what the ancient Celts were doing, but, you know, they're not really around to complain at this point. And <laughs> if they were around, we'd be happy to, to you know, um, welcome them, hand them a cup of mead. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, when it came time to construct the curriculum of my book, The Celtic Golden Dawn, what I did was I took these all this material that had been worked out in the Druid scene since the early 18th century, and all the material that had been worked out by the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, which draws on traditions dating back to the Renaissance, mm-hmm. and just did a merge, if you will. Mm-hmm. And obviously that involved a lot of changes and adjustments and, and experimentation on my part. But it didn't, it, I, I didn't have to start from scratch. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to start with some kind of vague idea, well, what could a Druid be? I already knew from within the, the worldview of the Druid revival what, we, what, what the revival traditions had worked out as, mm-hmm. you know, here's a curriculum, here are some things you want to learn, and you just go from there. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's a really lovely book in that way that with the merge, what, what I'm, you know, you, you, you mentioned earlier very briefly, there's some, there are some limitations to mm-hmm. the Judeo-Christian traditional hermetic uh, yeah. approach. And it seems like this beautiful merge has been able to, I would say, certainly alleviate, I don't know if you'd say eliminate, but there, I, I don't get this um, orientation towards ascension in it <laughs> that, that, I, that I often kind of feel that it's like so important to move up through degrees or whatever, you know, in the hermetic order. Whereas this is more like, okay, we really need to, it's a very contemplative approach, which might just be a subtle difference, but I, I've really enjoyed it. And just, can you maybe just describe a little bit about how it's structured? Because there is, it is like a course really oh, it is. in a book. It is. What, what I did, and this was partly Kind of a kind of a, an overblown joke, but I put it together as though it was the collection of papers from an actual um, Druid Golden Dawn fusion order from the 1920s because <laughs> I, I, just, I thought that would be fun. <laughs> and so there are three stages in the training. That's a very Druid thing, by the way. The Golden Dawn has a whole series of grades, mm. but most Druid orders, if they have more than one degree, they have three because three is the pattern number in Celtic traditions. You have um, poems that give triads. You have three of this and three of that, three of the other thing. That's a Druid thing. Mm-hmm. So the first grade is the Ovate grade, and that takes a minimum of four months, and that introduced the basic techniques of ritual and of meditation, mm-hmm. the basic technique of divination that we practice, and the basics of the philosophy. It's, base, it's just, it's your grounding. Mm-hmm. It's the point at which you walk through all of the ideas and you approach them just kind of as, as an introductory level. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you, you, it take, well, in, in theory, it takes at least four months. Um, most people take between six months and a year, which is fine. 
Yeah, I'm still on, I'm six months into Ovate and I'm like, wow, this is, um, yeah. this is going to take thing me is that, That's great. I've skipped ahead, that's, but I haven't practiced yet. It's like, wow. Yeah. yeah. Everybody, everybody does. But <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the thing is, um, taking your time at the Ovate level is a really good idea because the better you learn it, the more thoroughly you work into all these various things, the better the results are going to be as you build on them. It's like, it's like putting in a foundation. You want to make sure you've got it solid. Mm-hmm. So the ovate level is the foundation level. It's a level of ideas. It's a level of basic practices. Then you go to the bardic grade. The bardic grade works mostly with um, what with what's called pathworking, which are basically um, self guided visualizations, if you want to call them that. They have there's further dimension than that, but it's it's a very systematic development of the powers of the imagination. Mm-hmm. Thus, the bardic reference. You know, a bard ha- a bard is somebody who has a strong imagination and can tell stories. Well, that's part of what we're doing here, but we're also using the imagination as a way to tap into these symbols that you've learned in the Ovid grade and the various energies. You're meditating on all this stuff. You're developing your capacity to work with, in particular, the energies and imagery and ideas of the four traditional elements, fire, air, water, and earth. Mm-hmm. So you really put yourself through your paces and that really get a personal grasp of those of those elements, how they work, how they combine and so on. Mm-hmm. And so when you finish that, that takes um, that takes a minimum of um, eight months. Again, two to three years is pretty common and totally cool. Beyond that is the druid grade, and that's the grade at which you start doing ceremonial magic. Which now magic people go, oh, you know, it's on the one hand you say magic and everyone goes, oh, you mean devil worship. On the other hand, you say magic and people go, oh, you mean you mean like trickery, rabbits out of hats. No. Dion Fortune, who was a very important writer on on um, magical topics in the in the early twentieth century, used to describe mag- magic as the art and science of causing change in consciousness in accordance with will. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's magic. Magic, the art and science of causing change in consciousness in accordance with will. You've got all these tools. That you've picked, you, you've learned the basics during the Ovate grade. You've give, you've energized them and made them part of yourself in the Bardic grade. Now you can use them to help reshape your life, to help um, reshape the lives of other people who need your help, um, to help reshape the world by changing consciousness in various ways. And there are traditional ritual tools and practices that are used to do that. That's the material that you get in the Druid grade. That takes a minimum of one year. Three to five years is pretty common. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot of work. It really and is. It should, I mean, it's a good thick. And it should book. be. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And it should be. Yeah. If you're if you're getting if you're if you're getting something in three, you know, you, what you get in a weekend workshop is great for a weekend workshop, mm-hmm. but it's not going to keep you going for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. And then you have um, what, to practice. Mm-hmm. Then you have to practice. So basic, but you need, so th- this is, this is trying to do, here's, here's a curriculum, a study. It's going to take you some years to really master all this stuff as it would be, you know, if you were taking up a musical instrument, you wouldn't pick up a guitar for the first time and say, Oh, cool. I'm going to work on this weekend and then I'll be ready to perform. <clears throat> no. Or if you were going to take, take up dance or let's say a martial art, Mm-hmm. Okay, you're going to spend a lot of time practicing before you're ready to go out there and, and actually like spar with somebody. Well, and it makes the book, I think, a really excellent investment um, because I could tell that right away. And and I will say, I have skipped ahead and really enjoyed um, the bardic uh, grade mm-hmm. meditations, and particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, I and I use this when I'm doing trance work in you know mm-hmm. sessions with clients or in uh, workshops. Even just something as simple as focusing on an element and breathing in the energy and holding mm-hmm. it. You know, mm-hmm. not holding your breath, but but no, holding not holding your yeah yeah <laughs> yeah exactly. Letting the breath flow, but the element build and then discharges. And oh yes, mm-hmm. that's good stuff. And I Very really useful. loved when you talked about um, fire as the first element and fire Mm -hmm. as the soul of the world. That was very touching. And I kind of wanted to just see that as a little teaser for people that it's so worth sticking through the book. Now here's my sort of stuck point. Now for people Mm -hmm. who've never heard of it, can you describe what geomancy is? Oh, sure. Geomancy is simply, it's, it's a mode of divination. Um, meaning it's like the tarot, it's like the yijing, it's like um, uh, you know any of the other methods of divination that people use. It's kind of the Western equivalent of the yijing. It uses 16 feet. You know how the yijing has the 64 hexagrams, right? Mm-hmm. Which, well, the, the geomancy has 16 tetragrams. 
patterns of dots, either single or double dots. There are four of them in a, in a stack. There are 16 of them total. You generate them by various um, quasi-random processes, and you interpret them. Um, it's, it used to be extremely common. It was, as, it, was as, it was as common 500 years ago as newspaper astrology is now. Everybody knew, what, knew about it. People, people used it all the time. It's one of the things that kind, of, that kind of dropped out of use when the magical traditions of the Renaissance got shoved into the dumpster in the early modern period. Hmm. And it was preserved by, some, by, by certain magical lodges through, through that period. It was part of the Golden Dawn curriculum. And then I, I actually played a role in helping to revive it by, by, because I, can, I read Latin. And so I was able to go back and read some of the old medieval texts that give some of the really neat techniques that make it sing. Um, it's not, you know, like, like every kind of divination, it's not for everybody. But I found that for most people, it's a very effective way of divination, and it ties in very directly to the four elements. Well, and you actually did write a whole book on geomancy. What's the title I, of that again? That is The Art and Practice of Geomancy. And yeah, it is a, it's a whole book on the subject, and it covers not only divinatory geomancy, but the use of geomancy as a tool for meditation, as a tool for ritual, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Right. It's kind so, of my, my, my big book of geomancy. <laughs> well, I mean, when you say you played a part in the revival, I mean, yeah, it is. It's, it, it's the big book of geomancy. I have definitely, you know, I get into it and I really want to mm. make them and I really want to, you know, but then I, I feel intimidated, I think. So I'm curious Ooh. if an Ovate is having trouble getting the hand uh -huh. of geomancy, could you substitute a different form of divination to study and still advance to the next grade? Or is there... Ah, uh, no, no, you, you, you really do. Because the, because the geomantic symbolism is so important to the rest of the system right. and the way it meshes into the elements and so on, it really, you really do want to keep the thing. No, the thing is, if you're feeling intimidated, the first thing to do is relax. Mm. Okay, mm -hmm. it's not a big deal. There are just sixteen figures. They are your friends. Um, <laughs> you just you can learn how you can learn how to get used to them. The important thing is relax and remember, you don't have to get into all the big book stuff. Okay. You can just cast it, cast a chart, and read the judge and witnesses, the, the three figures at the bottom, and do your best. Mm -hmm. And the, because one of the things that I've noticed consistently with people who are studying divination is they'll get really worried about doing it wrong. Yes. And that's, you know, we, we all grew up, we grew up with, with schools that are fixated on you're wrong, you're wrong, and all this kind of nonsense. Mm -hmm. And, and it's not about that. It's about very gently learning to develop your own intuitive powers. We all have those. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of how thoroughly we had to repress them to get through, you know, whatever mess we experienced in our childhoods. Mm -hmm. And so it's just, just very, this is very much a matter of relax. Don't worry. It's like the, the advice in, in my favorite book on brewing beer. Relax, don't worry, have a homebrew. <laughs> okay. okay, that's what I'll do. I'll have some of our homebrew or our homemade cider. Ex as I exactly, <laughs> yeah. Any any time any time you get any time you get stressed out about geomancy, sit down, relax, have a homebrew, <laughs> and then pick it and then pick it up again. Just, yeah, it's it's not. Don't let it intimidate you. It mm -hmm. really is. It really is friendly. It's housebroken. Right. <laughs> it likes to be scratched behind the ears. Okay, I'll try it. Now the next more intimidating system for me has uh, uh, often been the tree of life. I can uh -huh. remember the basics and then, and then I, 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 and I also feel a little like, Ooh, you know, I'm, I, I'm not Jewish for instance, you know, like, should I really be just dabbling in Kabbalah? Mm -hmm. So the tree of life is a really important symbol in a lot of traditions and each has kind of its own take on mm -hmm. um, its own system of understanding. So can you mm -hmm. offer listeners kind of a, <laughs> I know this sounds, this is totally an oxymoron, but a brief tradition, a oh. Kabbalistic tradition. <laughs> or, oh, it's, it's easy. It's easy. The Kabbalah is actually incredibly simple. I do want to make, to add one thing before we get into that though, which is the Kabbalah is not originally Jewish. I'm going to have a book in print in, in the near future talking about that, but Gershom Sholem, who was the, the greatest Jewish historian of the Kabbalah, um, again, a major figure in the 20th century. His book on the origins of the Kabbalah documents the Jews got it from the Gnostics. Oh my! Okay. Wow, you heard it, it first, folks. And we love the Gnostics, so this is going to exactly. be an exciting book. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, exactly. You can pick up I mean, Gershom Shulman's book is in, is in most university libraries. You can pick it up there. But yeah, he documents the the Jew. And now the Jewish Kabbalah, the, the Jewish Kabbalah is a very rich, 
very powerful, very meaningful system, and any of our listeners who are Jewish, um, I would certainly recommend getting into it because it really does add, my Jewish friends tell me, that it really does add a, a very great a bunch of additional depth to that already very rich tradition. Mm. So that's, you know, that, but it's its own thing. The thing is, it was brought in from Gnostic sources into the Jewish tradition in the 11th century. It's actually, you know, relatively recently. And then within two centuries of that, there were versions of it going into other traditions around the Western world. Hmm. And so it's actually been, kind of, it, it is, in fact, one of the things that really keyed me on, keyed me into the fact that something is going on here is that there is a Chinese version of the Tree of Life that shows up um, almost 100 years before the first known Jewish version of it My in China. Goodness. Wow, this is fascinating. So, if you go back far enough, you find it rooted in, um, in the ancient Greek mysticism. Because hmm. hmm. the, the Gnostics were developing on a lot of stuff that the Orphics and the Pythagoreans and various other people, Neoplatonists, have gotten into. Hmm. So there's this very rich tradition that comes to us in the West largely through this, through this connection with the Jewish tradition. But, and, and it's a perfectly valid connection. But the Tree of Life is older than that. The tree, of life show, the tree of Life shows up, there are references to it, in writings dating from um, the 2nd and 3rd centuries. This, I'm, you're blowing my mind here. This is... Uh, oh, yeah, that, I, 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 I do that. This, this, <laughs> this, is, this is why I talk about, you know, you know I, I, I'm, I'm a geek. I spend a lot of time reading old, strange books. <laughs> and sometimes I come up with something useful. So the, the, but the basic, idea of, the basic idea of the Kabbalah, the basic idea of the Tree of Life, let's say, is that... The universe has a sort of tenfold pattern. Hmm. There are these ten stages in every creative process, and this is as true when you make a sandwich as it is when the universe comes into being. Every process of creation unfolds through these ten stages that move back and forth from balance to energy to form. And so on and so forth. The, um, if you if you can if you've got an image of the tree of life available, or if any of our listeners do, all the things on the right side, what's called sometimes the pillar of force, that's the energy. Everything on the left side, the three spheres on the in that um, line, the, that's the pillar of form, and the pillar of balance goes down the middle. Hmm. So, it, whenever you're working with the tree of life, you're working with this basic creative pattern that we actually all know anyway. It's just a matter of getting past, again, the, the intimidation factor. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the Kabbalah, the tree of life, has gradually evolved as a way of thinking about the universe. It's, you know, everything fits into these 10 slots in a certain sense. Hmm. And so it's a way of thinking about the universe, a way of putting together our experience in a, in a meaningful fashion, a fashion that makes sense to us, that allows us to understand things, and that allows us to cause change in consciousness in accordance with will. Hmm. That becomes the magical Kabbalah. Hmm. So we have all of these symbols that relate to each of the, each of the 10 spheres of the tree. And we have various symbols that relate to the 22 paths or, or you know, connecting lines, if you will, mm -hmm. that link together the spheres in a particular way. Mm -hmm. And you can shape your consciousness in different directions. You can you know, focus on this or focus on that. When you need to tap into a very nurturing energy, you can do that. If you need to tap into a warrior energy, you can do that. All of these things are there. Hmm. Where do so you start? Like, where um, do you start in the 10? And can you just sort of describe the pit stops? Oh, of sure. The 10 well, we're, 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 we, we all start at the bottom, like everything okay. else. Okay. <laughs> the universe starts at the top. We start at the bottom. The 10th mm -hmm. sphere, um, the Hebrew name for it is Malkut. Um, the name that I use in the, in the Celtic Golden on the Welsh term, is Nath. That that means the shaper. There are ten traditional titles of deity that show up in, in some of the old Welsh material, and so I, I assigned it to the tree of life. Hmm. The same way that the Jewish the people who created the Jewish Kabbalah assigned ten traditional concepts of divinity hmm. to the to the Jewish tree of life. So Nav the shaper. That's the world as we experience it most of the just in, in as a resting as sort of our rest level. The world as a bunch of material objects. Hmm. Okay? You know, here's the phone, here's the table. Um you know, here's the book, here's the internet computer sitting there, you know, and so here are these things. It's a world of things. It's a world of the world that we experience when we don't uh, clear our minds a little bit and try to look past that surface. Mm 
Okay. That's the outcome of the whole creative process. And it's by getting back behind that, we start tapping into the creative process so we can start using it. Okay, the next level up, ninth sphere, um, yesod in Hebrew, ner in Welsh. Ner means the mighty. Okay, that is the sphere of patterns of influence and energy. Think of it as power. Think of it as pressure. Okay. That's all of the thing, all the flows it's, it, it, in our system, it corresponds to the, to the element of water because it's very much about flow. It's about the things, you know, that's where you don't think of it as a table. You, you realize that this is part of a trajectory through time that started out as a tree and it's going to end up as soil. Mm-hmm. Okay. And everything becomes fluid and flowing. And you start realizing that maybe things aren't quite as rigid as they look. Right. Okay. Then we go to the eighth sphere. This is over. Now, these first two were on the middle pillar, the pillar of balance. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now we're going over to the site of form. Okay. And here we have bith um, in Welsh, um, hod in Hebrew. Um, this is the sphere This is the sphere of perception, mm-hmm. of the basic functionings of the mind, of the, the way our minds sort of sift everything out into little glimpses and elements of sensation. You look at this at the table in front of you, let's say, and all of a sudden you realize you're putting together this table out of things that your eyes tell you and things that your hand tells you and things that your ears tell you when the cat jumps onto it and, and all kinds of things like that, you know. So it, things start becoming glimpses. And again, there's modes of flexibility there. That's the place where, where the mind, in terms of, of the mind becomes playful. Hmm. In beef, and it stops taking itself quite so seriously. Okay. We go to the other side. Yeah, we go to the other side. The seventh sphere is bil. Um, that's and the the Hebrew the Hebrew term is nefach, um, and that is that's the sphere of emotion. That's where the passions are. That's where the nurturing energy is. That's where the life force takes shape in living things. First takes shape in living things. Um, it, it it ties into the passions and the emotions, and and we by understanding that we come to understand that as a mode of experience and a mode of knowing about the world. Our society is very well. Our society is very constipated about emotions. Still, <laughs> I mean, after the you, you think the '60s would have would have cured us of that, but not so much. <laughs> um, and getting to the point where we don't take them, we we don't ignore them, and we don't wallow in them. We experience them. We understand them. We help. We we balance them against the rest of our lives. And so on. Okay. Above, now those four, those four levels are levels that everybody actually interacts with all the time, even though we don't always notice it. Okay. We're always part, we always experience that, the, the, the NAV level of things as things. Things as just stuff, physical objects, things sitting there. We all experience the flows. We all experience sensation. We all experience emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, this is all part of the part of the world as we regularly experience it, although we don't necessarily pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. Above that is what's called the veil, and that's mm-hmm. the first of two barriers across the tree. Mm-hmm. And now there are barriers that can be passed through, but it takes some work in both cases. Mm-hmm. So the veil is what separates our normal mental functioning from the functioning of our minds and our, our souls that we can achieve through spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. And so the first one of the first, there are three. Um, spheres directly above that. We've got the four lower, we've got the three that are the next rung up, and the first of those is Minar, um, that's Tifereth in, in Hebrew. And that is, that is the sphere of the life force. Hmm. The life force, not bound in living things, but flowing through all things. You all know this one. Hmm. The forces of <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, you know Obi Wan's line. You know, it's an energy field that binds the galaxy together. All that kind of stuff. George Lucas was ripping stuff off from every spiritual tradition in the world when he when he quoted that. So, if you want to think of the Force, yes, the Force. <laughs> that's, that's Do it. That's, that was very good. Exactly. The thing is, everybody. Everybody these days, you, you just have to say, use the force, Luke. And everyone knows what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but Minar, that sixth sphere, Tifereth in Hebrew, that is the center of the life force as life force, as, as, as Druid said. That's where it becomes free. That's where you can, that's where you can tap into that, you know, that, those flows and patterns and powers. And that's why you have to raise your, your state of consciousness through the veil 
so you can tap into that. That's why we don't we don't normally perceive the world that way. That's why we do spiritual practices. Mm -hmm. um, above that, we're going over to the sphere, over to the um, side of form again. Above that, we have modur, which is that that's gibura in in Hebrew. That's a tough one for a lot of people because that's the hard energies of life. Mm. That's where we're to, that we're dealing with suffering, okay. and we're dealing with anger. We're uh -huh. dealing with the difficult stuff. And we, and that's what we come to realize, you know, how the universe is put together and how, where the limits are and why they matter and why they're actually good things to have. A lot of people in pop spirituality these days get all bent out about, oh my God, limits, believing in limits is a really awful thing. Well, you know, I'm really glad right now that my chair is limiting me. It's limiting my butt from bouncing off the floor. Okay. <laughs> And the floor is limiting me from falling through it. Limits, limits can be overdone, but in their place, they, they're really useful. Okay. Um, a lot of people these days have a real problem with, maintain, with boundaries. That's another word for limits. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so, that, so modor is the sphere. The, the fifth sphere is the sphere where we learn how to set boundaries and how to maintain them. And that's one of the things psychologically. We, we tap into that, and we, that's where power manifests okay mm. then we go over to the other side of the side of force and there we have ener that's chesed in hebrew and that is the sphere of expansion and mercy mm. okay where where motor is the hard aspects of life ener is the easy aspects is the flowing aspects the gentle aspects mm. you hold those of course you hold those in balance and those two come together in balance in the force in meaner hmm. and so now beyond that beyond those three we have another barrier and this is rather more complex this is called the abyss hmm. and what we're talking about here is the gap between the created world the world as 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 we're capable of experiencing and the transcendent realities that we that that are always present to us are always present with us but that we can never really directly take into ourselves while we're still ourselves Mm. And it's just, it's, again, it's a limit. It's a necessary and appropriate limit. But we can interact with those realities. <laughs> and those realities are, um, really, you, have to, you kind of have to start using mythological language here. Because the third, the third sphere, Dovas, uh, the Bina in Hebrew, is the Great Mother. Think of all your mother goddesses in mythology. That's, that's the power we're talking about, the primeval, primordial, maternal energy that gives form to all things. Balancing that over on the pillar of force, we have Perith, which is the, the great father, the paternal energy, that which sends forth, that which stirs into being, those two in balance. And then above them all is Keli, with Keter in, in Hebrew, which is the, you know, the universe in its, in its ultimate essence, which we can never directly experience. Hmm. It's always there. It's always with us. It's, it's, um, the, the Sufis like to say it's, it's as close to us, closer to us than our jugular veins. <laughs> but we can never really experience it. We can never know it. It's just there all the time. And about that, absolutely nothing can be said without turning it into nonsense. Hmm. Because human, human language won't grasp at that level. So that's your basic walk through the tree of life. Mm. And all of these are things we ex we either experience or have to de or deal with all the time. It's not that complex. It's not a, it's not you know strange alien tentacle or what have you. Mm -hmm. It's it's a way of talking about the universe we all live in, and it just simplifies things a bit and sorts them out and shows how you can move from one state of consciousness to another, so you can interact with these things in a way that that supports what you're trying to do. Well, I've really appreciated how you've sorted it out for me. I maybe it's well, I'm partly in some ways like an auditory learner or something because this mm -hmm. is just it feels very clear and I can see in my mind where we were moving through the map. I'm I'm curious if there's are there any then significant differences between the uh, traditional, let's say the Jewish Kabbalistic tradition that we know of and the Druidical approach to how, for instance, how you're using the tree of life in the Celtic Golden Dawn, your book, is it mm -hmm. very different from what people would pick up in uh, another book on Kabbalah? Well, the symbolism is different, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, 
the when when I'm when I'm t- talking Kabbalah, I'm using partially I'm using examples out of daily life, which a lot of other books don't, mm-hmm. and partly I'm using the particular perspective you'll get from from within the Druidical tradition. Okay. But the basic ideas are the same. If you pick up um, a Golden Dawn book, one that I really recommend, uh, Lon Milo Duquette's book, The Chicken Kabbalah. The Chicken Kabbalah. The Chicken Kabbalah. It, okay. it, it, that is, it's it's short. It's extremely funny. Um, it's just it, Lon Lon calls himself the world's only stand-up Kabbalist, and and he's he's, <laughs> he's right. Okay. He's one of the funniest men I've ever heard, and he's a really brilliant Kabbalist teacher. So that that book has become kind of an introduction that. that everybody uses. Um, I am actually working on a sequel to The Celtic Golden Dawn. Working title is The Celtic Kabbalah, which is going to go through all of this in much more detail. Oh, that's exciting. It's taken taken some time because one of the things I always do when I'm writing a book on magic, I will not publish it until I have done every single exercise in the book. Mm-hmm. Often enough that I've worked out all the bugs, I know where the problems are, and you know have put in stuff to fix them and so on. I, that's just that 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 strikes me as basic courtesy to my readers. If somebody's willing to plop them, you know, pay cost yeah. money for a book of mine, I want to give them something that I've tested. Oh, thank you. No, they and so and welcome. I've tested them also. I've road tested in a number of your books. Um, thank you. Currently, uh, even just pulled phrases out of some of the mm-hmm. books that are not so much handbooks, you know, like The Long mm-hmm. Descent. I've used that mm-hmm. in certainly Mystery Live, uh, sorry, uh, Mystery, Mystery Teaching of the Living Earth. I use that a lot. Yeah. So the, the Celtic Golden Dawn has definitely gone into my toolkit as well. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. You talked about the fifth sphere, Modur, I think mm-hmm. you called it. And mm-hmm. I wonder if this is where grief comes in as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Grief, basically, we all inter. I mean, we, we all have we all have experiences in life that we don't like. We all have experiences that hurt. Pain is one of the is reality. It's not it's not an illusion, despite what some people in pop spirituality say. It happens. It's a reality, and yeah. So grief grief is one of the things that comes out of that sphere. Okay. Now you you had said so. This is the sphere of suffering. And you mm-hmm. particularly pointed out anger. And I'm curious mm-hmm. how you personally, John, manage your feelings of anger or rage, particularly when you kind of look out at the world as it is. You've been writing about peak oil as well as magical things for so long. And there, there must be some anger there or rage about the world. I mean, just it's infuriating sometimes. It must be so frustrating. I'm curious how, what does that look like, you know, on an average Thursday or, you know, Monday morning <laughs> rage? How do you do it? Well, well to, to some extent, the, I mean, the, there's, there are a couple of levels here. On the one hand, there are aspects of that that tend to want to go down into the body. We, we're social primates. We're, we still got all those linkages that teach us to, you know, rev up for a fight. Um, I've done a lot of stuff in the martial arts, and I highly recommend that as a way to deal constructively with anger, with rage, with all those emotions. Because, mm-hmm. you know, on the one hand, there's something profoundly satisfying about punching a, a piece of lumber and having it shatter. <laughs> and this is particularly something I recommend to women because women have been taught to be passive. They've been taught, they've been lied to, let's be blunt, that they don't have power, they don't have strength, they can't shatter boards. And that's why, I, I honestly think that um, we would be a much saner society if, if in place of girls PE <laughs> in the schools, we had martial arts training. Mm-hmm. And you know every 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 girl who is physically able to, of course, you know we other arrangements made for those are for those who have various physical disadvantages, but those who are physically able to um, should you know should learn how to break boards with their bare hands, mm-hmm. and just to to own that power that we all have, whatever our gender happens to be. Mm-hmm. But the, that's a good physically. That's a very good thing. The the thing is, anger when you get angry at the world for not, not, not being what you want, um, very often, this is, this is hard to say, very often there is an underlying sense of entitlement, mm-hmm. a sense that mm-hmm. the world ought to be listening to you. And it really helps to spend some time in meditation, really dealing with the fact that the universe doesn't. Mm-hmm. You know, the sky is not, the sky is not watching you. <laughs> um, you know, and, and, you know, and so... You know, what you do matters to you, it matters to the people who know you, it matters to people who are influenced by you, but the universe is not going to listen. And so if you can actually, if you can work your way into that space, 
anger becomes just much less of an issue because, you know, you know the universe is not particularly going to do what you want to. And then instead of getting angry, you take that emotional energy and you direct it into doing something constructive. Mm-hmm. And that's, in my mind, really the thing. You know, when I get, when I get really bent out of shape or something, I write a lot. That's, that's one of my major modes of creative work. And so I will sit down and write a blistering essay about something, <laughs> that something badly needs blistering, <laughs> or what have you. Or, you know, just take the, don't let the energy fester. Don't let it sit and simmer and make you miserable. I don't, or, I don't know, your mileage may vary. What works for me? Mm-hmm. is taking the energy and doing something with it, pouring mm-hmm. it into something mm-hmm. so that it doesn't just sit and fester and make me unhappy. Well, that if anybody would like to enjoy the blistering essays, uh, you can find them on ecosophia.net. I have enjoyed them, but I will say that uh, actually the Celtic Golden Dawn was a different flavor for me. It was there, mm-hmm. was, there was a gentleness to it that I really appreciated and a patience. And it, it really does feel like a collection of letters from mentor to, you know, from mm-hmm. adept to initiate, you know, mm-hmm. it, it was a lovely that, conversation. I'm delighted to hear that, that came across because that was something I was really trying to achieve in that. Good. Well, thank you so much for sharing this information on that book. And I'm going to put links in the show notes, but I really appreciate all the teaching you did today, John. Yeah, you're, you're very welcome. I would like to break boards with my hands. Yes, I am interested in this suggestion. Not only did I learn some things, I got some ideas today. Uh, Did you learn some things, folks? Hello, the Kabbalah is older than the Jewish tradition. The tree of life is older than the Jewish tradition. My goodness. Yeah, I, I, I really think the uh, way that John described the tree of life is going to sit with me a bit longer than it ever has through books. It's nice when it's told to you in story form like that. To read some of John's always excellent and sometimes blistering essays, remember, go to his website, ecosophia.net, E-C-O-S-O-P-H-I-A.net. I'd like to thank all my listeners in the Jewish diaspora for proliferating and stewarding the beauty and the knowledge of the tree of life all these centuries. Thank you very much, those of you who are listening. And finally, just a heads up that deposits are due April 1st to come on Quest with me during the full moon in June 2018. You can now place your deposit online. You can learn all the details on my website under the Retreats tab at carmenspaniola.com, C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care. Would you like me to know your thoughts on this episode's subject matter? I bet you would. I hope you do, actually. Feel free to leave me a voicemail or type me a note at castfeedback.com backslash podcast. That's castfeedback.com backslash podcast. Okay, let me actually spell it out. C-A-S-T-F-E-E-D-B-A-C-K.com backslash N-U-M- I-N-O-U-S-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. I'd love to hear your thoughts.